0: The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So it looks like uh, some of us are watching football right now, or maybe avoiding the weather, or maybe both. So for all of our all of us non-football watchers, or at least people who chose to be here. We get to dig into this really, I think, amazing topic and has so many implications for integrating our dharma practice, this awakening process into daily life, this practice of mindfulness of speech or wise speech. And one of the things we learn, excuse me, not just in this area of practice, in a lot and this is going to be the topic for our residential retreat that I'll be leading um, over President's Weekend where we look at some of the shadows and everywhere in our not just Buddhist meditation practice but Dharma our spiritual practice generally shadows creep in they creep in everywhere in our lives and so we hear something like wise speech or skillful speech and like all those shadows start to come in where we basically use the different teachings as fuel for judging ourselves or judging other people that wasn't right speech you know and so the important thing to remember with all of what we learn here and other places it's uh the whole point of these different teachings is to illuminate our way Their skillful means of illuminating, helping us to see what we're not seeing, right? And in particular, to see aspects of the mind, the nature of the mind, the nature of the heart, that for whatever reason, we haven't seen yet. That's why we call it an awakening process because through these different practices, different reflections, different skills that we're learning, we start to see what we're not seeing. And in that way, we overcome not seeing, which is you know, the equivalent of ignorance, the ignorance of not seeing what's here and now. Because it's not our habit to see what's here and now. And this is true in terms of our speech as much as it is in any part of our life where we are living basically out of habits And because these patterns exist as habits, there's a strong sense of I don't really need to pay attention here in this part of my life because I know how to do this unconsciously. We don't even think that, but that's sort of the underlying dynamic because we can operate unconsciously, we do operate unconsciously. We choose in a way to not be present or not to be interested in what is really moving in our hearts, what's moving around us. And in particular, and I mentioned this last week, not sensitive to the intentions, motivations. And this is how we begin to have a deeper sense of speech. Like what is our words or our silence, what is that setting in motion for ourselves and for others? Well, We can't, it's not easy to have a sense of what our words set in motion or our silence, not speaking sets in motion, unless somehow we can begin to sense the quality of our motivation of speaking, the motivation behind keeping silent. What's that motivation like? Is it fear? Are we motivated by fear? Are we motivated by greed? Wanting to be seen, needing to be seen. Are we motivated by kindness, by love, by joy? So we have to develop this set of tools so we can begin to unpack this very potent part of our lives. I mentioned last week, and I think it's worth re-mentioning, is you know, being people, human beings that have relationships, that are we are interacting all the time it would be different if we were actually walking around with a really high powered weapon with a very sensitive trigger. We would be really careful all of us. I'm sure in this room would be very careful as we moved about our lives, lugging around this high powered weapon, but we're doing that with our speech. It is so easy. To set emotion, to cause harm with speech. But we forget how powerful it is, how much damage is done. So we want to have that kind of sensitivity. I thought I'd begin the talk tonight with this quote from Ajahn Jaya Saro. He's one of the senior Western disciples of Ajahn Chah, this very well-known um, Thai meditation master and Buddhist monk. Who died in the early 90s and trained some of the first generation of Western teachers? And Ajahn Jayasaro is a British man who's uh, mostly in Thailand, still practicing and teaching there, as now a senior monk himself. But he has this wonderful line, and I think we can use this little teaching for a long time. He says, when there appears to be a conflict between our welfare and another person or another group's welfare, usually it's a sign of confusion regarding the nature of welfare. And Think about this, because we talked a little bit about this last week, and I'll talk more about it tonight. It's like uh, this confusion about speech, where well, I need to say something to take care of myself, but it's... You know, it's going to cause other people harm, or I'm not going to say anything to take care of myself because I don't want to cause harm. But it might be better as we move through life and necessarily have relationships and necessarily interact with the people we're in relationship with to hold this as a possibility that there's a way to be in relationship that's healing for me and the other person. That's a cause for healing and liberation for me and the other person. In the same way that there's a way for us to be in a relationship that's, you know, diluting for the both of us or creating suffering for the both of us. See that presumption, right? Just holding that as a possibility, it brings a kind of integrity to all of our relationships like when we're at the checkout line or if we're one more time home with our spouse, our partner, back at work one more time, another day at work, interacting with the people at work, if we really sense that this interaction I'm having with this person can be the cause for healing and liberation or the cause for very real suffering for me and others, we're going to be awake. It doesn't mean we'll be skillful, but we'll be awake. So even if we're not so skillful, the momentum of our not-so-skillful habits overtake the mind, causing us to say something or not say something in a way that's unskillful. But because we're alert, because we're awake, we'll connect the dots. We'll see, you know, we'll feel the reverberation, like, well, that didn't feel good. There's this great teaching from the Buddha, to his son, eight-year-old son, Rahula. Some of you know this story. I'll just mention it briefly. But after a few years of the Buddha's awakening, his deep insight, and he had become already a pretty well-known teacher in northern India at that time, he wandered back through the town, the area where he had grown up. And um, his son was now like seven or eight. Um, uh, His Um, The son's mother, um, which was the Buddha's aunt, because the Buddha's mother died shortly after childbirth, um, told Rahula, go to that person and collect your inheritance. (laughs) So the Buddha took him on as a novice monk. And then uh, soon after that, he gave his son, Rahula, who was now practicing as a novice monk, a young boy, this teaching. And he said, it's really simple and not so easy to live up to, but it's a very potent teaching about this ongoing reflectiveness. So he said to Rahula, not just in terms of speech, but in terms of thinking, and speaking, and acting. But I'll I'll read the part that's about speech, but it's pretty much exactly the same. Repeat it first for whenever you think, and whenever you speak, and whenever you act, so the Buddha says to his son. <clears throat> whenever you want to perform a verbal act, you should—oops, excuse me—you should reflect on it. This verbal act that I want to perform, would it lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others, or to both? Is it an unskillful ver- verbal act with painful consequences, painful results? If upon reflection you know that it would lead to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both, it would be an unskillful verbal act with painful consequences, painful results. Then any verbal act of that sort is absolutely unfit for you to do. But if upon reflection you know that it would not cause affliction, it would be a skillful verbal act with happy consequences, happy results, then any verbal act of that sort is fit for you to do. And then the Buddha says... Not just before, but while you're performing a verbal act, you should reflect on it. And basically repeats the same thing. Is This going to, this, these words I'm speaking right now, are they going to cause me affliction, affliction of others, right? If so, do whatever you can to abandon whatever you're saying. If not, go ahead, say what you're saying. And then he says, Not only before, not only while you're speaking, but after you're speaking, we should reflect. And I'll just read that. You should reflect on it. If on reflection you know that it led to self-affliction, to the affliction of others or to both, then, of course, it was an unskillful verbal act with painful consequences, painful results. Then you should confess it, reveal it, lay it open to the teacher or to knowledgeable companion Right, somebody who's also practicing, somebody interested in not harming, you know, this foundational commitment in our practice to not harming. If you think you can develop mindfulness and go around cheating and harming other people, you'll find that it's not really possible. So he goes on, he says, Having confessed it, you should exercise restraint in the future. But if on reflection you know that it did not lead to affliction, it was a skillful verbal action with happy consequences, happy results. Then you should stay mentally refreshed and joyful, training day and night and skillful mental qualities, right? Well, you're probably feeling pretty good seeing that it wasn't harmful, that it was a skillful thing you said. Then you should appreciate that, right? And live, continue practicing as you're practicing, both day and night. So the thing about this particular teaching is the Buddha is suggesting this ongoing reflection around speech before we speak while we're speaking after we're speaking and it sounds really oppressive like oh god I'm going to be so tight but the interesting thing is and this is why we practice like for example your body is sitting right now and that sitting body of yours has sensations right and the mind, the attention, the awareness in the mind is already sensitive to the sensations of the body. Right. So just notice that awareness in the mind is already sensitive to the sensations of sitting. And then just be continuously aware that sitting's like this. And notice, just ask yourself, how much effort, how much personal effort do I have to expend to remain aware that sitting's like this now. There is an effort, but it's a very simple, not oppressive effort. It's just the effort of remembering that the sensations of the body are already being known. The mind is already sensitive to the body. You actually can't stop the mind from being sensitive to the body. But... It is possible for me to get distracted right now, like to get obsessed about who's winning the Super Bowl. And then I, in that thinking, I could the mind, the thinking mind, creates a bubble that, in a sense, cuts it off from this natural awareness of body. The awareness of body doesn't cease, can't cease. But the mind can forget that that sensitivity is there because it's lost in the bubble. If North Carolina wins, is it Denver, Denver, North Carolina? You know, we could be thinking whatever we're thinking. So this reflectiveness about speech before we're about to speak, while we're speaking, after we're speaking, it's like we're already, that awareness, it's like a mirror. That mirror is already there, right in the middle of things. That mirror, that perfect mirror of the mind, naturally and effortlessly, just like a mirror does, reflects what what goes on. And it takes no no effort. Like if you put a really complicated image in front of a nice mirror, it's no more work for the mirror to reflect that really complicated scene than it would be if all the mirror was reflecting was a blank wall, right? Or if it was like a rapidly changing scene in front of the mirror, does it take like, does the mirror get neurotic? Oh my God, there's a lot going on. I got to reflect all this. No. And so that's why that is such a useful metaphor for the mind. That particular aspect of the knowing mind, the mirror, is a really good metaphor. But we have to realize this about mindfulness. Because otherwise, we construct a story That, oh, now Mark, or now the Buddha's telling me I have to be mindful of speech. And it just feels like an oppressive trip. You know, another big should. And uh, we want to abandon it. So on the other hand, we could hear, like we're hearing right now, that actually it's not that hard to be aware of speech. Right? And there is so much potential for happiness in learning to speak more skillfully. I mean, I'm not kidding. Compared to any other aspect of our life, most of our regular ongoing suffering is very directly related to speech. Just check it out. You know, if you just like take keep tabs on feeling lousy, <laughs> a lot of it, not all of it, of course, but a lot of it has to do with The regret of what we said or what you know just what somebody said to us so we actually have every incentive to make this a place of practice and to assume that there's a way to have relationship to be in relationship to speak to interact that can take care of ourselves and another and whenever we think otherwise that no no I'm taking care of myself this time my spouse, you know, she's got to suffer because this is the, you know, I took care of her last time. (laughs) Now I'm really going to speak my truth. And it's interesting. Like, um, how do we, how can we do this? I was, I mentioned this morning in the talk, I got to attend a few of the marches this last fall, um, sponsored by some of the groups related to the black lives matter movement. And, uh, I noticed feeling uncomfortable sometimes when there were chants, uh, about the Minneapolis police force and just, you know, just sort of being a non-confrontational type person and, you know, oh, you know, just being conflicted about like whether I was happy to be there, but whether I wanted to sort of do the chant and, uh, and it was, and it's kind of around this line, like, well, is this really a healing thing to do? And here's the thing about speech and how we have to be, you know, we won't really know what right speech is until we're there in the moment and we're engaging and most importantly we're, as I mentioned earlier, we're learning how to pay attention to the motivation or the intention. Not just our own, but the group too because it's mixed it's almost always mixed and the thing about speech is you know we can almost always because the intentionality the motivation is mixed we can almost always find something off in anything we say or somebody else's somebody else says but does that mean that silence is more skillful than speaking That's the question, right? That's what's really relevant because the alternative is nobody saying anything in a lot of cases. So often when people start to speak up, it's messy and the motivations are mixed because maybe there's a lot of rage or maybe there's a lot of hurt or a lot of unexpressed, unacknowledged trauma that's starting to be brought to the surface. And, uh, so, we have to be willing to take a close look and really look at the direction of what's happening. Like, where is this going? Is it in the direction of healing? Like, you know, and some of you maybe are doctors or nurses, you know that sometimes with wounds, there's a time of kind of opening it up. One of my dear friends and a longtime leader here at Common Ground. This is a while back now, over 10 years ago, I think, um, had a terrible motorcycle accident. And uh, we all rushed over and he was in intensive care for a long time, just sort of life or death. And once we were in there, and I don't think they meant this to happen, but I mean, one of the things that they learned from the recent war in Iraq was how to deal with physical trauma, like people in serious motorcycle accidents. So one thing they learned is you don't close up the body right away because there's a lot of swelling and a lot of work that needs to be done. So they they basically cut him open, and they left it sort of open so that uh, inflammation. Anyway, we walk in, and, you know, he's just like totally exposed like that. It was just shocking to see, you know, that very quickly the nurse covered him up, because we were just going to sort of sit with him um, in intensive care for a couple hours. Forgetting exactly why I brought this up, but it's, it's generally about, like, uh, like uh, sometimes exposing the vulnerability of the body. Like, maybe it would have made us all feel better seeing this person all sewn up. But that doesn't mean it's actually going to help us healing. Maybe what helps us healing is to have all of this exposure. And for us who are not trained... Be surgeons or to see that kind of thing—it's shocking, and you know what we want to say is like, "Oh my God, sew him up," (laughs) you know, or fix him, or make that go away, or I don't really want to see this, or something like that. But maybe it's really good. So I want to say this because a lot of times I mentioned at the beginning of the talk, we have this shadow that creeps in about right speech. You know, we have this idea of being polite or being kind and it can be this shadow this oppressive shadow about things shouldn't get messy people shouldn't hurt but sometimes things do hurt but that doesn't mean it's wrong speech so there's a, a really important teaching where the buddha kind of goes through these different possibilities and I want to share them with you it's a very interesting story from the time of the Buddha. You know, like any time back then, 2,600 years ago, there's a lot of competition among different teachers, and evidently, but who knows, um, seems right to me. The Buddha wasn't very competitive, didn't, wasn't sort of interested in sort of knocking other peoples down, but because the Buddha was quite uh, charismatic and people were really drawn to him, the other teachers at the time felt threatened. And so they would try to make him look bad. So one time, one of the well-known teachers at the time got one of the local princes and told him, go to the Buddha, you know, we'll work together. I'll tell you what to say. You go to the Buddha and you'll make him make a fool out of himself. And this is what you do. You ask the Buddha to answer this question. You know, sir, venerable sir, do you ever say anything that's disagreeable, unpleasant to people? And this, you know, not good teacher says to the prince, and if he answers yes, then you say to him, well, then you're no better than the -the run-of-the-mill people out there, you know. If you can't even keep yourself from saying mean things, unpleasant things to people, what good are you? And if he says that he doesn't, then you bring up this, because a few years before, whenever it was, the Buddha had said about his, evil cousin, (laughs) was trying to take over the Sangha. Devadatta was his name. And, uh, you know, these stories come down over the centuries. But, you know, he he was, he had some real charisma, this cousin of the Buddha, and uh, was really out to get the Buddha and and sort of power hungry. And so, and he did some terrible things. And so the Buddha said, you know, basically something like, you've created a lot of negative karma for yourself, and you're going to suffer in more elaborate ways. But the Buddha basically said that to him. And so this evil teacher said to this prince, so if he says he doesn't say bad things about people, bring this up because clearly Devadatta found what the Buddha said about him disagreeable, you know, not pleasant. And he said, and it will be as if the Buddha has swallowed this, this seed that gets stuck in your throat. You know, he won't be able to swallow it and he won't be able to cough it up. Right, because he wants to like catch the Buddha in a lie, or like uh, Christie did with Rubio last night. For those of you <laughs> who saw the Republican debate, <laughs> I have to confess. So he does that. He says to the Buddha, "Do you say? Would you ever say anything disagreeable, unpleasant to another person?" And the Buddha, being a wise person, says, well, there's not really a category, categorical yes or no answer to that question. And then immediately the prince realized, you know, oh, my God, it's not going to work as we plan. And the Buddha asked, like, what are you talking about? And he explains the situation to him. <laughs> and the Buddha, he didn't even put down the, he just said, let me help you out here. Because the, the prince went with his son or his daughter, his daughter, I think it was. So he's sitting there with his little infant daughter. He says, if she got something caught in her throat, what would you do? And she said, well, the, the prince said, well, I, I'd do whatever I had to, including if I had to jab my finger down to pull out the little twig or whatever she got in her throat, even if it cut her, I would do that. Why, the Buddha asked, because I love her. I care about her. And the Buddha says, just so. So that's the setup for what he's about to say, right? Because he's now going to explain... When you can say something that's disagreeable, um, and he sets up this, you know the three things that you need to pay attention to in terms of speaking wisely, speaking skillfully. Is it true or not? Is it beneficial or not? And is it pleasant or not for the person hearing it? right? So you can probably guess if it's untrue, unbeneficial and unpleasant, should we say it? Because it's not going to help anybody. If it's true, but unbeneficial and unpleasant, should you say it? It's kind of interesting. If it's true, unbeneficial, and unpleasant, should we say it? Can you think of times when something's true but unbeneficial? Why would we say something that's true but not helping anybody? right? Yeah, make somebody feel bad or to make ourselves feel good. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it's the truth. (laughs) Right? So here's the thing. I mean, this is one of the things I love about the Buddhist tradition. It's always about skillful means. It's not about some absolute, like it's absolutely true. It's just about what's it setting in motion. So speech is all about what it sets in motion. This is what karma means. What are we setting in motion by doing what we're doing, not doing what we're doing? Because we set things in motion by saying things, but we also set things in motion by not saying things, and doing things, and not doing things. We are always creating karma, we're always setting things in motion. You can't be alive without setting things in motion. So, this is the thing there's no way to avoid responsibility. We're responsible for what we think, say, and do. So there's no way but to start paying attention. We all have incentive to pay attention because it matters. We're a karmic being, right? Because everything we say and do, or don't say and don't do, it leaves, it did, it's not like there's Santa Claus or somebody keeping track. Doing something or not doing something makes an impression on our own heart and mind, the mind stream. Whatever, whoever we are in the next moment, that mind stream, that mind heart has been impressed upon by what we do or don't do right now. That's what that mind is in the next moment. The mind that didn't do this or did do this, right? So it's not like there's me in the next moment deciding to do or not do. It's this mind right now The mind that's saying this right now, or the mind that's not saying what I might want to say right now, that's this mind right now. So we're creating this moment, this mind moment right now, conditions the mind moment in the next moment. Who we are right now is the strongest conditioning force for who we are in this moment. And then who we are in this moment conditions who we are in the next moment. So it really matters what we say and don't say, so we want to take responsibility for that. so just a kind of so true but unbeneficial, unpleasant, or you could say true but benef, uh, uh, true, but unbeneficial and pleasant. both you don't say, according to the Buddha. right So he was basically saying, as an awakened being, as somebody with a lot of wisdom, not. In greed and aversion, if something's untrue, I mean, I'm sorry. If something's true but unbeneficial, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant, I don't say it. It has to be beneficial, right? And he doesn't even bring up false but beneficial, because from the Buddhist point of view, there's no such thing of something being beneficial that is false. Which really kind of should bring a little light bulb around these so-called white lies. Now, I'm not saying there aren't ways to take care of people, but we shouldn't uh, quickly rationalize what is untrue because we think it's beneficial. There may may be more complicated, may take some more reflection, but there may be a way to speak the truth or to keep quiet, so we're not falling into this assumption that to take care of somebody, we have to tell a lie. We have to speak a mistruth. I think the others are obvious. If it's true, beneficial, and pleasant, and if it's true, beneficial, but unpleasant, then the Buddha says, find the right time and place to tell it, right? Right? So if it's true and beneficial, pleasant or unpleasant, find the right way in time. Right, so that's the real challenge. Not that we, can, we need to avoid things that are unpleasant or disturbing for people. Clearly, we have examples, hopefully, in our lives, certainly around us, of seeing somebody say something that was very valuable but hurt. I'm sure, certainly for me, people have said things to me that have hurt, but were really good to hear. Maybe I didn't feel that initially, but eventually it came around to saying, I'm so glad that person had the wherewithal to tell me that. Sylvia sums this up in a really simple way, you know, in terms of right speech, speaking what's truthful and helpful and finding the right time and way to say it, right? Truthful and helpful, that means it matters how we say it. It matters when we say it instead of just blurting it out because it's true. But we're really, because we have sympathy, we have compassion for everybody, we think we reflect on the right time and place for saying it. When would it be good to say this? And the last thing I want to mention before opening it up for discussion are these topics for speech that the Buddha brings up. And this is, again, a really potent teaching, I find, where the Buddha reflects, like, from an awakened point of view, so in those moments when we're wise, what topics of speech actually turn out to be worthy for conversation? And what topics of speech are not so worthy for conversation? Now, you know, like the first one, politics, or as it's translated, you know, talking about kings or talking about those in power. But... We, there are ways to talk about politics, that it's not really about the horse race or who we like or dislike or who we think is stupid, but it's really about understanding the nature of the mind. So I just want to kind of keep that in mind. So I'll just go through this quickly so we have time to talk together, because you'll have a lot of examples, hopefully from your own experience about speech that ended up entangling the heart or speech that ended up healing and liberating the heart, liberating the mind. So topics that are not so good to be avoided. Politics, robbers, you know, people doing bad things. Think about our newspapers or, you know, things we click on on the internet often about people doing stupid things, doing bad things. Well, that's interesting. It's just sort of interesting that that's so much of our conversation. Celebrities, Heroes. They say armies and battles, food and drink, clothing, fashion, furniture, garlands and scents, relatives, vehicles, villages, towns, cities and countryside, (coughs) attractive persons and people, gossip, tales of the dead, philosophical discussions, creations of the um, creation of the world, like how this world came to be, or. Does this exist or not exist? So all these sort of philosophical speculations. So those are the topics not so worthy for conversation. But remember, sometimes like we talk about the snowstorm or even how about those panthers, you know. But really what we're doing is saying, you know what, I'm a human being, you're a human being. We're having this moment together. I really care about you even though what we're, the way we're doing is is we're talking about music or we're talking about the weather or we're talking about sports or we're talking about clothes or nice haircut. But it's not really about that. Still, I'm not saying that's great, but it might be okay. But it might, knowing that it's a little bit of a deflection, like it's a roundabout way, might inspire us to be a little bit more direct. And there may be a socially appropriate way to say, It's really nice being here with you. I really appreciate seeing you here. You know, like there are ways to kind of ground it and to actually learn how to be okay in the silence or in, you know, whatever activity we're in the middle of. This is one of the nice things about interacting in the car because we both have permission to be in silence in a car together, don't we? You know, as opposed to if we're actually standing in the checkout line and we recognize somebody next to us, it's like, it's awkward. How, and I catch myself all the time saying things that are either humiliating for me or just inappropriate or don't need to be said, because basically I'm afraid, right? Right? And wouldn't that be so great to be able to look the person, and even someone we don't know well, and just say, I'm always so awkward at these times. You know, I always feel so compelled to fill in the space, you know. Because then we're doing, not then we're talking about one of the topics that are appropriate for conversation. So I'll go through that list. Contentedness. Right? You can talk about experience of feeling contented. Modesty or... Humility, seclusion, right? So not, seclusion in this sense isn't like my perfect cabin on the north shore of Lake Superior, but um, not being addicted to doing, that kind of seclusion, like a mind that's content, being quiet, being peaceful, being in the moment without compulsively have to do something. Non-entanglement, right? So that's sort of that, where I was going with that conversation at the checkout line, Just, like, isn't it interesting how entangled my mind gets with needing to, you know, fill in the space here. It's really nice to see you here. I don't really have anything else to say. (laughs) You know? I mean, that's the honest truth sometimes. I don't really know enough about you, and frankly, I don't remember your name, and I should because we've been introduced a number of times, and I'm just too embarrassed To ask again you know so it's like that honesty is so refreshing and enlivening and it's really it's like a reflection that i care enough about you not to to play this sort of silly game or whatever you know however we do that so non-entanglement persistence is a worthy topic of conversation like like just talking about how when we see something that's really good for us and we practice being committed and just talk about, like, this is again about karma. Like, results come from that persistence, from being committed. If we do our practice every day, if we put in a half an hour and you do that for a few years or a few decades, you are a radically different human being than somebody. And even if you don't even know much about meditation, you don't have a good teacher, you haven't read good books, but you're just awake. You're just curious. So even if when you do the bad thing in your sit, your meditation, you're aware of what happened. You will get good at the practice and your life will be radically changed. It's just a matter of time. Now, if you just do the same old thing and don't really pay attention, it may not make much difference in your life. But if you're actually at least alert while you do your practice some of the time, things will change. Right? Because that open, alert, non-judging presence is the universal solvent. It will break down all of the, you know, all the rigidities of the heart and mind. A couple more things here. Concentration, virtue, discernment, release, and knowledge and vision of release. So that's what we get to talk about. So, as you share with the group right now, then, you know, there are ways, don't get tight, there are ways, no matter what you want to say, there's a way to make it fit in one of those topic categories. So, remember when you use the mic to point it right at your mouth so that everybody in the room can hear you clearly. And uh, any questions you have, of course, but also your own experiences around right speech and not just your successes, right? We learn a lot from hearing about your failures, like how you set emotions suffering. So we don't have to make that mistake. So who would like to go first? What have you learned? What questions do you have? Yes, Tom, thanks for starting us off. I've been thinking about um, when things come at me as opposed to my saying things um, to other people. And screwing that up pretty well as often, but when things come at me and it's hurtful or not helpful, um, I'm not exactly sure what to do um, about about that because I I mean I, I, I tend to work through it somehow. But it's hard for me to say to somebody, uh, oh, that was really hurtful, because that seems like I'm being hurtful back or something. Right. But so just to break it down, because what we're talking about now are these 10 paramis, these 10 really wholesome, beautiful qualities of the heart. And then one we're talking about now is this commitment to truthfulness, this value of truthfulness. So then in that moment of hearing somebody and being hurt, then we want to be honest about that. Now, that doesn't mean we should say anything, but the first step is to be honest. Ah, oh, this hurts. right? Because it's not until we have some kind of a wise and balanced, honest connection with the moment. Oh, it's like this. This really hurts. We have to be in a balanced place to begin to discern the different motivations that hurt is triggering in us. So we have to look at the different motivations. And remember, the first intention or the first dozen intentions may not be skillful at all. So a lot of our practice in that moment is first we have an honest connection with the pain. Maybe it's humiliation, the pain of humiliation, pain of not being loved the pain of not under, being understood, or whatever it might be. And then we see one compulsion or impulse after another, and maybe they're not skillful. We don't trust them. Like, I don't want to act on that. I don't want to speak out of that. And it's actually very good. It's not easy work, right? Because a lot of that work is the work of restraint, like, honey, don't do that. Don't say that. But that's good work. I mean, that's like liberating to have this capacity to restrain ourselves. But eventually, we might have something to say that's really useful, like, you know, I think i got to go now. I mean, that might be all we can say. That may be as appropriate of a response as we have. Or it might even be one of those things that verge on a white lie, like, you know, I really need to get home and do this thing. Even though what's, what we're really saying is, I'm hurting and I'm confused, and the only skillful thing I can say right now is, i got to go home and do this thing right now. So that's what I'm going to say. And it may not be perfect, but it handles the situation. It's sort of, we leave ourselves and the other relatively unscathed. We're not adding to it. It doesn't mean we've diminished the pain we're feeling, but we haven't added to it. And then it may take months, right? Sometimes it does before we really have some clarity about that first step. Oh, this feels like this. Because sometimes it's not easy to get, to actually have an honest, undefended recognition of what we feel. And it's only then, when we're not playing defense, when we're not averse, when we're not afraid of what we feel, that we can even begin to know what needs to be said. And so much of our suffering is that we say something, but it's the motivation for saying what we say is coming out of our fear, our unwillingness, our inability to feel what we're feeling. So it's so much better to be able to wait when we're not afraid to feel what we're feeling. Whatever you said back then... It really hurt my heart hurt so much it was really hard for me to feel that I didn't want to feel it. it took a long time but now I can feel it and it really hurt and I just thought I needed to let you know that and I also want to say and then you can speak your truth but now it's not charged by our fear of feeling what we feel because being in relationship with other people means we're vulnerable to what they can say. People who are in relationship have power. They have power to say things and then we feel them. Whatever that feeling is. Right? And if we don't want to feel then don't go into relationship. I think I mentioned this a couple weeks ago. This is a quote from Thich Nhat Hanh. If you don't Want to change, don't go into relationship. Right. If you don't want transformation, don't go into because re- when we have an authentic, not an on-autopilot relationship, but a real relationship, it's very dynamic. It's amazing. I see that with my spouse. Because, you know, the reality is when we're interacting with someone, we're just getting moments of real relationship and then lots of moments of autopilot but i notice when i'm really in relationship with her very quickly it gets very alive and very scary and very real and things start to happen very quickly you know and then because mostly at some point or together somebody decides this is too intense or this is too doesn't trust the process then we we find a way to kind of break it i'm sure you've noticed like you're having this amazing connection with somebody, and it's very real, and it's very alive, and it's very transforming. And at some point, usually when we lose mindfulness, we react to the fear of how alive it is, how real it is, how rich it is, and the mind deflects it, kind of goes to some safe territory. What about those Vikings this year? (laughs) You know, we kind of shifted away from... Um, what's really going on here. Thanks, Tom, for bringing that up. Yeah, Robert. And then there's another guy right behind you, Tom, after Robert. There is a song, as you were talking, uh, the song is, Fool's Rush In, Where Angels <laughs> Fear the tread, uh, but angels never fall in love, so how are they to know? And I'm reminded of that. Very much. Yeah, thanks, Robert. It reminds me of that scene. I mean, this is more about sexual lust, but some of you remember the show Seinfeld, and he was having a conversation with a good friend of his, who was a woman, and they were talking in his kitchen and around cereal, and and uh, and they were, you know, just gabbing about this and that and this and that, and then all of a sudden Jerry asked, you know, why is it that we never hooked up together, you and me? You know, we get along so well. You know, we always have so much to talk about. I mean, we just, it's just so great. We just, it's so easy to talk. And then there's this moment of silence, right? Where they're not talking. It sort of popped the bubble. And they realized we're attracted to each other, right? And they fall, you know, have a moment. But it's like that too. It's like uh, we, we use words to fill in the space of what's really going on. And... uh so sometimes silence can really open things wide up, right? If we just drop our casual way of being together and really allow pauses. Yeah, and then you had a thought to share. Yeah, I'm Andrew. Um, uh, my question was about the, the whole, you know, beneficial, it, like the like the honest, beneficial, unpleasant. Um, I guess my question is how do you determine whether it's going to be beneficial because like, I feel like sometimes I'll say something because initially it's, it's going to hurt, you know, it's a very unpleasant thing. But in my head, I'm like, in the long run, this is going to be beneficial for this person, but I don't really know that we know what's going to happen. But you can know, and that's an excellent question. But what we can know is that my motivation, my intention is that it benefits the person that we can know. But you're absolutely right. We don't really know, we hardly know what's beneficial for ourselves, let alone for others. But we can know, and it actually turns out to be more important. What's more important isn't so much what we say, but the motivation behind it. And because we're motivated to benefit that person, not only are we going to say something or keep quiet because we care, But because we care, we're going to keep watching, we're going to keep track, we're going to keep mindful, and we'll actually learn whether it was, in fact, beneficial. right? Because we're, you know, assuming we stay in relationship, assuming we continue to care. So that's why the Buddha said, reflect before you say it. You're reflecting on your motivation. Reflect while you're saying it, and continue to reflect even after you say it. Was that, in fact, like now, what I know now, what I said back then, was it actually beneficial? It certainly seemed like it would, would be beneficial, but now I have a little bit more information because then that changes who we are. Okay, it seemed beneficial, but it actually didn't turn out to be beneficial. So don't be fooled like I was. Don't you know make that mistake again. So we learn little by little like that. But we're dealing, like you suggest, in this imperfect world. You know where we don't we don't see clearly. But that we want to err then on avoiding. But just because we don't see perfectly, doesn't mean silence is the better way. So we have to engage. And here's the thing that I mentioned. I think last week we want to make mistakes at both ends. So if you're somebody who tends to keep quiet. That means you're making a lot of mistakes at that side of the equation, but not making mistakes of saying things you shouldn't have said. For those of you who are always saying things, then you want to start making some mistakes on not saying things, keeping quiet when you should have spoken up. right? Because if we're not making mistakes at both ends, both sides, then we're not really learning effectively about how to be how to speak wisely in our relationships. We'll take one more week to check in and we'll, I'll save even more time next week for people to share. So really pay attention in this next week, what you're learning and all the little and big interactions that you have. Be nice to hear more from folks. Let's just take a few seconds and let go of the words. Appreciate the silence. finding a kind of fearlessness as we know now that we're going to re-enter the world of interaction relationship really showing up with our practice so we're being mindful of intention the motivations behind our actions and our words so may this lead to real peace and freedom from suffering in our hearts and in the world thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. Really nice to be here with everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.